burn in me. Let the fire of the Holy One burn in me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. This will seem like a little bit of a strange place to begin, but stay with me. We'll get there. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which interpreted means God with us. God with us. Now, I'm going to go to Luke chapter 1 and just read some scripture there before I continue. uh, Verses 30 through 35. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, I want to kind of focus on Mary this morning. Even there... Notice, notice what the angel was saying here. He will be great. He'll be the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father David. The, that ruling place that David had, God's going to give it to him. Now Mary had been probably not sitting at the feet of the rabbis because they didn't allow women to do that in those days. Uh, But Mary had been around all of the talk. She had been on Solomon's portico where where the women were at least allowed to stand and, and to listen to what they could hear. And she had grown up with these statements like, one will go forth to be the ruler of Israel. Statements like, the government will rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Behold, the king, our king, is coming to you. And those were the focus of Jewish thought. They didn't spend a whole lot of time on the sufferings that the Messiah was prophesied to have coming his way, but they focused a lot, not even on his majesty, but on the fact that Israel would again rule as it did in the times of David. And you can see in focusing on that, there are certain amounts of expectation that comes from that. Now, before I go on talking about Mary, I just want to say that I'm afraid that we have kind of done that in the church. And we've focused on the prosperity. We've focused on the, the power of the believer. We've focused on things that pertain more to us than it does to the king and his kingdom.
But just think now, as Mary would focus on these things, how disappointed she must have been when she had these lofty expectations, even out of what the angel had said when she first got pregnant. She had these lofty expectations and she's raising this child that had been prophesied to be the son of Almighty God. This, this child that, that by all the Jewish thoughts should have been the perfect child. He, he should have been above everything. And then all of a sudden at 12 years old, he disappears for three days. And when they finally found him, he's, he's sitting in with the elders and the, and the uh, priests and the scribes, and, and he's debating with them. He's talking with them. She said something like this, Son, we've been looking for you. And instead of being the subservient child at that moment, he, in his early teen years, he said, What, you don't know that I should be about my father's business? Think what he was saying there. Mary and Joseph had come looking for him. And he was reminding her, My Father is Almighty God, should I not be about his business? Now, he also immediately obeyed her. He went with her. And then the Bible says that after that he grew in the nurture and the admonition of God. He, and here's something, you see, we don't look at the human side of Christ too often. But if you're ever going to understand who you are, you need to look at this. That in his submission and in that statement that he grew in the nurture and the admonition is an admitting that he needed some growth that maybe he didn't respond to his mother correctly all the time. Maybe he didn't handle men just right all the time. He had to grow not only in his knowledge of God, but his knowledge of how to work with people. Gives you a little hope for your teenagers, does it not? <laughs> now, Mary had been told that he's going to sit on the throne of David. And for her... This meant that there were a certain type of individuals that he would hang out with. And he takes up with fishermen, tax collectors. Not only takes up with them, but they begin to follow him around. And he begins to empower them from time to time to do what he does. He called them his disciples. Uh, I want you to realize here for a moment, he was giving every indication of the seditious messiahs that had been over and over brought to the attention of Israel but had been smacked down by the ruling governors. He wasn't admitting it. He wasn't saying it. But the way he lived could not help but remind Mary of this deal. He was found with the party folks. You say, no, no, yes, yes. Why else would they call him a wine-bibber? Now, I don't, it doesn't mean that he was getting drunk. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. But it does mean that he was with those kind of folks enough that the accusations came around. Now, let me give you a little more modern-day example. Years ago, I was part of a church that we were building off of street ministry in Kansas City. Phil Reason, some of you remember him. 
Phil Reasons and I built a street ministry out of that church with the purpose of funneling people back into that church. Every Friday and Saturday night, I was downtown hanging out with hookers. That's what we did. And we won many of them to Jesus. Right out in the open, standing beside the street corner. That's the best place if you're going to meet with them, is right out in the open. <laughs> but one after the other, we won them to Jesus. Now, do you remember several years ago when they found several working women in the dumpsters in Kansas City? They had been killed by their pimps, beaten to death. Some of those were the girls we won off the street. As quickly as we could, we would win them and get them out of town into a ministry out on the East Coast as far from Kansas City as we could get them. Cookie Rodriguez ran this ministry for working women and seen the lives of many of them change. But we couldn't get them all out. Those that, those that got saved and tried to leave the business, they wound up in dumpsters dead. Oh, Jesus was found hanging around those kind of people. Sobering, isn't it? Women with bad reputation, he allowed them to touch him. By Jewish law, this would have made, them, made him unclean. He actually allowed one of them to pour her perfume on him and rub it into his feet, which would have been a spectacle to anybody that was of the Jewish persuasion. But instead of bringing filth to him, it brought cleansing to her because of something that was on the inside of him. He was running his anointing. He was test driving this thing that was upon him. He was understanding what his father was saying. He hung out with tax gatherers, which, which were the ones that colluded legally with the Roman society and they were hated by the Jews because they were always taking not just what Rome had coming but something, a little something for themselves. When Jesus came up against those that, were, that had leprosy, you were supposed to stand at least 12 feet distant from a leper. And if you touched him, you were considered unclean. And you would have to go through the ritual cleansing according to the Jewish law. What did Jesus do? Walked right up to them, laid his hands on them, and instead of him becoming unclean, they became clean. Yeah. Amen. Because of something that was in him. That he was, Luke is making the point over and over again that Jesus was doing this. This is what it looks like for a man to be anointed. This is what it looks like to have God's touch on you. The woman with the issue of blood, she was required by law that when somebody would approach her, she was required to say, unclean, unclean. But she slipped through the crowd and touched Jesus' garment and was made whole. And instead of rebuking her, he said, somebody touched me. Somebody, so somebody touched me. I, I felt it go forth from me. The Bible says that it went forth from him. And, and he said, I felt it. Somebody 
pulled something out of me. A normal, natural man demonstrating to us how normal, natural men and women would live empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's take that a little further. Boy, you don't hear people talk about this very much, but I'm going to talk about it this morning. He saw what was happening with those who were the money changers in the temple. And he didn't immediately go down. You look at Scripture and you'll see. He didn't immediately go down there. He sat up on the side of the hill overlooking Jerusalem and braided a whip. Premeditated whooping. He's going to do something. He's a man. He braided the whip and then he went down there and he threw over their tables and drove them out of the temple with the whip. One little nice Jesus won't do that. He did it. And God didn't mess with him because of it. He didn't, he didn't rebuke him. He just gave us the record that he did it. And then when Jesus started out of, out of town, a, a little display of temper, if you would, and you look at the original and you'll see that, he reached a fig tree. If a fig tree has leaves, it should have fruit. He reached in the leaves and there's no fruit. He rebuked it and the thing dried up. If you're not going to bear fruit, and the disciples were going, whoa. Can you embrace this kind of Jesus? Because this is who He was. This is what it looks like for a man to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was presenting Himself in situations. I couldn't help but think of this, Mike, as I was listening to your examples, how you presented yourself in situations not like you had a lot of choice in either one, but just maybe God will use me. We'll see what God will do. Got no plan really except to get up in the morning and follow God. And that's what Jesus was doing. He just presented Himself in situations and saying what God will do. Now, Mary must have had this conflict because the angel of the Lord has said he's going to sit on the throne and he's doing all this stuff that makes the Jewish religious folks hate him. How, what a conflict there must have been in her mind as, as she went about life. And you can prove it, again scripturally, that at one point he was doing so much stuff that his family decided he was crazy. They're going to go take him away and put him away where, where nobody can see him. And they come to him and he said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he said, who's my mother and brothers? These, pointing at the people around him, these are my mother and my brothers. How that must have crushed Mary's spirit to realize that he was, he was saying that these are equal in, in the way I love them as my own family. You say, oh, Mary was bigger than that. Was she? She too was human. I know there's groups that say she wasn't, but she was. She too was very human. And, and I can just imagine uh, at the cross how Mary must have felt. Now, let me make something clear here. The, the uh, Roman punishment for theft was not crucifixion. You follow, you look it up in history, it was not. Now they might cut off your hand. They might cut off your fingers, but they didn't crucify thieves. Yet, 
Jesus was hung between not two thieves, but two transgressors. Crucifixion came to those who were trying to stir up the rabble to overthrow Rome. And they called them, in our English word, transgressors. Now, here's Jesus with this accusation against him that he said he's king. And he didn't say he was king. Other people said he was the king. Understand, that's why he was crucified. And the reason the Jewish population came against him is he didn't quite do enough to be their Messiah. He didn't overthrow Rome, so he couldn't be their Messiah. But the Roman government came against him because he wouldn't deny that he was king. And they adamantly, there's no king but Caesar, and anybody that rises up against Caesar will die, and crucifixion was the punishment. So as Mary knelt there at the cross, folks, I don't know if this will impact you like it did me, but at that moment she was of the mind that this is another failed Messiah. And it's my beloved son. Other people had thought they had heard from God and set themselves up as a Messiah. You trace it through history and you'll see they would rise up against the ruling government, be smashed down, and over and over again it happened in Jewish history as Mary knelt at that cross. She, she was seeing him die. And folks, I want you to know that the world around us will not see us in splendor and majesty. Sometimes they'll see us go through processes that look like death. But he's our king. He's our king. And that's why we keep going and we keep going and we keep making decisions that nobody else would make and we keep doing what nobody else will do. And how she must have grieved as she looked at him. Now, we don't know much about Mary after this time. But don't you think when it was declared that death couldn't hold him, that she remembered also the prophecy that talked about that? That she might have remembered that he, su he was to suffer and that he was to die, but that he would rise again on the third day. Think she might have remembered some of that stuff? I think she must have. I can't prove it. I'm not saying that as absolute fact. But I know that her thought processes must have changed at some point because God had also declared, I won't allow my Holy One to see corruption. I'll draw him forth. Now, we don't know whether Mary was in the upper room or not, but... I just wanted to set up the humanity of Jesus in your thinking this morning. And you know, I didn't exaggerate any of that. That's in the story, but we choose to ignore it very often because we too want Him to be the majestic one. We too want Him to be the King. But the truth is, before He was King, He had to live a life of an anointed man and turn around and say, Now just as my Father sent me, I'm sending you the same way. Serious business, isn't it? All the way from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, those that were raised in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish education system, were aware of two expressions and representations of God. Part of Genesis 1 and verse 2 says, And the Spirit hovered. That word spirit is the Hebrew word 
Rauch, R-A-U-C-H, it's kind of a, like an O-W-C-H in, in our language, but Rauch, and that's the word for wind. Think about that. From the very beginning in their mind, there was a holy wind that blew and blew and, and separated stuff and hovered and, and was there. That, it was a movement and that same wind came forth out of the breath of God into that pile of dust and created man. They were very familiar. When, when Moses went up on the mountain, the Bible says the wind blew. In other words, if you would say that in English, it would say the wind howled and like it was trying to blow the top of the mountain off when Moses went up there. All of that stuff was happening. And then Jesus, when, when he began to talk about the Holy Spirit, obviously he had been educated this way because he said, that wind blows where it will. <laughs> you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. But the wind blows. So they were very familiar with that. This, this whole Jewish group that were gathered around there that day. And, and then when it comes to the fire, they, they were very familiar that this, I didn't go through all of these scriptures. I just looked at them personally. But one place says the fire came out from before the Lord. Uh, one says the fire came out from His presence. Another one says you shall present an offering by fire. Another one says and the mountain burned with fire and the wind howled and blew. Your God is a consuming fire. And Moses heard Him speak from the midst of the fire. In their, in their teaching they were very familiar with the wind and the fire being the symbol of God. I've gathered there at Jerusalem on that 50 days after Pentecost was Jews from all over the world. Some were there for religion. Some were there for, for uh, <clears throat> commerce. But they were gathered everywhere. Now, we don't have a completely dependable record of where the upper room actually was. Most of the scholars believe that it was probably the upper room called Solomon's portico that, that was uh, outside the walls of the temple but connected but wherever it was, we know it was a very public place because when things began to happen up there, people in the street were looking at it saying, Oh man, they look at Peter, he's drunk. Look at him stumbling. Listen to him. One was saying, he's talking in this language. Another saying, I understand what they're saying. And I don't talk, I don't talk Greek, I don't talk Hebrew. And on and on, they, they were looking and it was impacting the crowds. Now, I want to ask you something. How long has it been since something has happened to you that impacted a crowd? We can live like that. We can live like that. <clears throat> but then, and got to find my place here, in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. It says there's a noise like a rushing wind. And it came and it filled all the house. That word noise is the same word in the Latin that we have translated as echo. The reason I say Latin is because Aramaic is pretty much a dead language now. But, and Latin too, I guess, when you really get down to it. But it was the word that we would have translated echo. How many of you have ever stood on the side of a mountain with another mountain facing you and yelled real loud and heard the echo come up and down? It originated, the noise originated from you, but it travels. (laughs) 
And this is the picture it's painting that out of heaven, out of God's dimension. Now get this, I'm not talking about from out there somewhere. But out of God's dimension, there came an echo of the, of the noise of what was going on in heaven. And it began to come in there and the wind blew like a right, mighty rushing wind. And to the Jewish mind, they would immediately connect that with God. Because they, what, the weather didn't change. And all of a sudden there was a wind blowing. <laughs> there was a movement in the air. There was something in the atmosphere. Have you ever been in a, in a service or, or out in, in town and be ministering to somebody and all of a sudden there was a change in the atmosphere? It might not have been a wind, but there was a tangible change. I have many times, and I understand how they would understand that, that there was, there was a, a sound of the wind that, that came from heaven. And then verse 3 said, And there appeared tongues as of fire distributing themselves and set on each of them. I want to explain that for a moment. They had been around the fire from a distance. They had looked at the mountain and saw the fire burning and the lightning striking and the wind blowing. But they had said, Oh no, Moses, you go up there. We're not going. You come back down and tell us what he said and we'll do our best to do it. But I ain't going up there. They had experienced that, what they called the eternal fire in the temple from which they started all of the fires for sacrifice. But it was a safe fire. The, the priests were to go in there and, and, and it was just, it's kind of like our fireplaces in our home. It's a, it's a nice little fire. And we can feel the warmth of it, but we want to keep our distance. That's the way the Hebrew people knew about this fire that was the presence of God. And they're using the example of fire because it was a consuming thing. It's one that had the ability to cook, the ability to heat, but it was thought of as a consuming thing. And all of a sudden, that fire's not safe anymore. It broke out of the, it broke out of where it always been. And that fire began to pop up on every one of those that was in that upper room and it began to burn and to burn and to burn and to burn and to burn. And there was something now about each individual that would have that same presence on them that the priest had. And you begin to, I began to think, I can remember years ago when I, when I first began to study this, I was thinking, man, what do you do with that? You've got to understand that the book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. That Luke wrote about this man Jesus. He, he wrote, he, he interviewed numerous people and he wrote their stories and said, this is the way a man lives under the power of the anointing. And then when he got over to the book of Luke, he was saying, or the book of Acts, he was saying, now, Theophilus, I want you to understand this. This is what it looks like when it's on the people. This is what happens when it breaks out among them. This is what happens. It changes everything. Everything about the Jewish lifestyle changed in that upper room. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Unlearned men walking down out of the upper room, Peter, to be specific, preached about a maybe a seven, eight-minute message. 3,000 people were saved. Just before, he had been so faithless that he said, I'm going fishing. And people followed him. He was saying, I'm returning to the old way of life. And people followed him. Now, 
he's talking about what this all is about. And people are struck to the heart. Everything changed for Peter at that day. Tell you something else that changed. Women were not a part of ministry up until now. But there were women there. They came down out of that upper room empowered by the Holy Spirit and we watched them as they helped to plant churches as, as they do the work of ministry throughout the book of Acts. We, we got their names and all throughout Paul's writing. Everything changed then. Now, the crowd, as they began to hear each of them, heard someone speaking in their own language, either that or they heard them just speaking in a heavenly language and they could understand it. However it worked, I don't know. It really doesn't, it really doesn't establish it clear enough to make a doctrine out of it, although we've really tried. But something began to happen there. A sound from heaven. The fire of God broke out. And now these people were being touched and they looked at each other and said, what does this mean? And Luke took great pains then to write for the rest of the book of Acts about what it means when men are empowered by God. But go back to the example of Jesus now and look at what he did. He didn't bow to the demands of Christianity. He didn't, or not Christianity, but the Jewish uh, tradition. He didn't bow to those commands. He said, my father works and I work. He said, I do nothing unless my father tells me to. That's what he said. He said, the glory of my father is on me and I want that glory to be on you. So when he sat and allowed this working woman to massage his feet with the perfume that was part of her, her profession. What was he doing? He was taking a chance on the anointing that rested in him. That that anointing would touch her and change her, and it did. You follow that woman through Bible history and through church history, and you'll find out she was dramatically changed. How? By being with Jesus. What about, what about the woman that was taken in adultery? Jesus should have stood with the priest according to Jewish tradition and been a part of those who would stone her. Instead, we don't know what he wrote on the ground, but it was something that brought great conviction to those priests that thought of stoning her, those religious people. Maybe he wrote gossip. Spiritual pride hypocrisy and as he wrote they just went away and he said to this woman that obviously had broken the law I'm not going to condemn you either now go on get out of the sinning business yeah that's paraphrase paraphrase heavily but that's the way he did it and so we got to realize that Luke is telling us what it looks like for not only one man to be anointed, but what's expected of us in the anointing. Now this is something that I say over and over again as I, as I work with people. Sometimes, Chelsea or I will be going into a situation and one or the other of us is wondering, 
Why are we even going? I don't know what to do. Or she will be going, and I I don't think she'll mind me saying this. Sometimes she puts a lot more um, confidence in me than I'm comfortable with. Because she wants me to go pray for somebody. And I'm saying, God's talking to you. He's not talking to me. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. But we've learned that if we'll just go and take a chance on God, that in that situation, God will begin to speak. And it'll turn into a God encounter. Why? Not because of us, but because the fire of God lives in us and burns in us. And guess what? It doesn't come and go. I, I really get frustrated when, when I hear people talking about, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will come. Hey, He came. He's been here. I don't have to pray for Him to come. He's here. What I need to pray is God help me to be more responsive, more sensitive. Help me to, to respond to this, this one that lives in me. That's not a thing. The fire of God living in you is not a safe thing. Matter of fact, it's a very unsafe thing. I remember going to a church in Texas and after church the pastor was was telling me that uh, we had never met before and he was telling me at the back, he said, you know, this is a safe place for your family. And I said, I'm not looking for a safe place. I'm looking for an unsafe place for my family. And you could see it hit him. And he began to change his thinking about that whole thing. And he told his team, his greeting team, don't say that anymore. (laughs) I want a place where the Spirit of God breaks loose and it's not safe anymore. It's not safe to be in my flesh. Folks, we need to know that. That we have a fire that burns in us. But miracle of miracles, it's also subject to us somewhat. Because we can quench it if we want to. Now think about that for a moment. Paul said, don't quench the Spirit. How would you do that? We have a baptism where we're immersed in the Spirit of God and that, that, that wind blows in, in our thinking and, and around us and it, it burns and, and the fire of God is in us. The only way to quench that is by insisting on immersing ourselves in the things of the world the only way and Paul's saying don't immerse yourself in those things don't try to be like the world don't try to see how close to the world you can come and still get to heaven don't do that but celebrate the spirit be filled with the spirit the correct wording is be being filled be being filled with the spirit of God be being immersed in the Spirit of God. Let your very being be about being immersed in the Spirit of God. Leslie begins to sing this song. I want to open it up this morning and give you an opportunity. If, you're, if the prayer in your heart is, God, make me different. God, I want to be one that, that has your fire burning in me. God, I don't want to be a safe person anymore. I want to learn what it is to release the fire of God. And I want you to stand and just gather around up here and let's sing this song together and make it a prayer. Burn it.
in me. As people are coming, I want to give an one more illustration, but it's about two people. We think that God's going to just use those that we love and He's going to put us in their lives and we're going to greatly change them. There's at least two times in my life where God has given me assignment of people that I just did not like. And maybe you like everybody. Well, that's not me. But these people would insert themselves in my life and I would back away from it. And finally, in one particular time, God spoke to me and He said, I'm assigning this person to you. What will you do about it? And I realized, uh-oh, this is more than about who I like and who I don't like. It's about more than whether or not I'm comfortable in the presence of this person. This is about an assignment of God to loose what is in me on them. Both of those situations, these people have been dramatically changed by walking with me and becoming friends with me. And I have become great friends with both of them. They're still different. <laughs> really different. <So> are you. <laughs> Almost weird different where I'm concerned. But the thing is, the fire of God's now burning in them. Why? Because you have an unsafe fire that burns in you. That will come out. And it will get all over people. And folks, you've got to put yourself in the situation. Now, there's, there's something that, that is before the church these days, and because of the, the sexual misbehavior of some church leaders, we've separated ourselves from people saying, oh no, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. You put yourself out there and you love people. And there's some people, guys, I'm telling you this, there's some people, some female people, that need nothing more than having somebody with a father's heart just lay his arm up over their shoulder and tell them how much they mean to him. God won't let it become something out of hand if you go into it with the right ideas. And we've got many, many, many young people out there that need a mother to wrap them in their arms and just hug them. That needs a dad to look at them and say, I see this in you. And if you'll begin to live this way, I'll help you get there. We've got to be bold enough. We've got to be bold enough. If, if you were to look at my social media scroll, you would find there are numerous, numerous young women on there that have been discipled by me and Chelsea, but mostly by me. Why? Because I'm bold enough to do it. And watch their lives change. And watch them begin to live for God. Watch them begin to have identity. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't take anything for those relationships. They're wonderful. I don't know how many young men come to Chelsea and call her mom. And she folds them up and hugs them. And you know what? There's nothing sexual about it. It's the love of God. Church, we've got to get back to demonstrating the love of God. I know that several of you are praying that the power of God would be demonstrated through you. Two things. Remember that it began for Jesus, not in the temple, but out there. 
he came up after spending some time in the desert the Holy Ghost and he came up the Bible says in the power of the Holy Ghost out of the desert and what did he do he began to just give that thing a test run yeah, I know it's on me let's, let's see what it'll do and he did it get out there and give it a test run folks but let me follow it with this we can be powerful but we won't be powerful and popular So if you're all about being popular, forget about being powerful. Yeah, there's people that'll love you, but there's people that'll hate you too. But my goodness, think what it would be if this group of people began to release and demonstrate the power of God. It would change our world, change our city, change our life. Now, Father, I pray for the next week that everyone here become so aware of the wind of God blowing in their lives. Holy wind. <laughs> Holy wind, hover over me, hover over my world. Fire of the living God, burn in me. Burn in me, God. Burn in me, God. And Lord, grant that signs and wonders would follow as we speak your word. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for responding. Thank you for coming. Come back next week. We'll do it again. Let the